Good morning, everybody. We are talking again about Paul's correcting some of the abuses that he saw happening in the Corinthian church as we're looking at his first letter to the church in Corinth. And today we're in chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It happened to fall on a communion Sunday, which is very appropriate because we are going to take communion, but we're going to take it after my message today so we can let the weight of the teaching come down and really rest on you as you're taking communion today. Let me begin by starting with a little story. It's a true story. I found a picture to help illustrate it that came from one of those little nursery cams, and this is what it looks like. The true story that I'm thinking of came to a relative of mine, and they had shared that story at one of the family reunions when we were talking about our scars. It always happens at family reunions. Why is it that we talk about our scars when we get together with family that we haven't seen in a long time? Well, there was a family cam that caught this kid who was doing what he was not supposed to be doing, and he started to crawl out of his crib. That wonderful father saw what was happening, rushed into the room, and got there just in the nick of time and saved that little lad from a crash to the floor. And it looks like it could have been a crash to the head. So good for you, dad, well done. The family member who shared their story with me at the family reunion said that the same thing happened to them, but when their parent caught them, they caught them by the feet <laughs> and they bit their lower lip so hard that they actually made a hole just below their lower lip all the way through their skin. And they've had a scar ever since that time. Now we couldn't see it very much because it was right at the fold of skin and they had actually had to point it out to us so that we could actually see it. But when we saw it, we thought, oh my goodness, that must have hurt like the Dickens. And they said, well, it did. I cried and cried, but at least they saved me. So there you go. So I'm just going to leave that story with you because we're going to come back to it and I'm going to make an observation about that, reaching back to it after we've gone through this passage, which we're going to share together now passage today, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, and I'm reading today from the NIV, the New International Version. Paul says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, which is in opposition to some of the things he had said earlier. There are a couple of times when he was trying to be diplomatic, and he was saying, in these things, I do have some praise for you, but right here at this part of the letter, Nope. <laughs> he says, I have no praise for you in this particular matter, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he 
comes. So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with this world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home, so that when you do meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Kind of sounds like when your father gets home, <laughs> that's the tone Paul gives. And let's pray together as we dive into this particular passage today. Father, Paul has some very stern words for us today through this passage in his letter, some of which are difficult. And as is always the case, we can trust that your Holy Spirit will bring to light all that you want us to learn because you illuminate your word and shed light on it in such a way that it makes sense, not only to what it meant to Paul's listeners and readers back then, but you help it make sense to us today so that we can apply the principles that are still here for us in 2020. And I pray that we'll do that so that we'll start to think and act more like Christ and do the things that would honor you, even in the way we take and think about the Lord's Supper. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I tried to lump these verses together in a simple outline today, and I think this helps us sort of tackle it in chunks. I am a sort of a chunk outliner. First chunk is the crime, verses 17 through 22. Why do I say crime? Because he uses language that sounds like he's talking about a crime and judgment, and so it sort of fits with that sort of theme. Then the context, he starts to tell us a little bit about the Lord's Supper and some things which he had heard from the Lord himself. We'll look at that. And then the consequences. What are the things that will happen because we're found guilty of that crime? And then what is the correction which he offers that he says, you should do these things so that we don't fall under that particular judgment from that crime. That's where we're headed today. First, he says, no praise for you. <laughs> I have no praise for you in this particular matter. He just makes that abundantly clear. Should I praise you in this? No, you're getting this one completely wrong, folks. There were divisions among the believers. There were factions. There were people who were starting to believe certain things, and they were uh, developing some leaders among those factions, and they were starting to have a team mentality, our team against your team. It was team politics in the church, and he didn't like it. And then there were some differences. Now, the differences that we're looking at here are some things that we need to think, was he talking about being serious when he said, and there are some differences and they're necessary in there because we need to find which one of you are approved of God or not. I think there's a strong case to be built for his being facetious there because it's almost like he's saying, oh, and of course these differences that you're demonstrating through your factions and your divisions have to be there so that you can truly tell which one of you are dearly loved by God and which are not. In that case, if he said it with that tone, he would be facetious, and if they knew him well enough, because he spent 18 months with them, they would have known when Paul was being facetious and when he was not. I think there's a good case for that. 
many of the scholars that I read about who were trying to weigh in on this passage said, no, I think he's being serious there. And he's saying it's going to be necessary because there are still sinners among you. The sinners who are saved by grace are still being shaped into God's image. And so it's necessary that differences will occur. And that way, through those differences, we will be able to shake out which ones have finally gotten it, that it's by grace and not by works. In that case, yeah, the differences are there and they're necessary simply because we're still sinners saved by grace. Or maybe because Paul, who was really good with words, he had a real legal mind, could say it in such a way that it could be interpreted either way or both, and that some would get the double entendre and they would say, yeah, he's serious and he's being facetious all in the same sentence. I think that would be brilliant. And because he's such a good speaker and writer, I suspect that maybe he intended for them to be both that way. Good for you, Paul. Also, through this section on the crime, verses 17 through 22, he's saying, so what you're calling the Lord's Supper isn't. You're meeting together for this meal that we're supposed to have, and it was a meal that had begun at first daily as these new believers were gathering together all the time. And as a part of that meal, they would set aside a particular part where they would actually celebrate what we would consider more communion. They would have some bread, they would have some wine, and they would spend some time remembering what Christ did for them. But it had sort of devolved quickly. I mean, this is not that far removed from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So it didn't take long before people were starting to forget the significance of that part of their meal. And he was saying, they're, you're selfish, you're exclusive, there's divisive behavior. Some of you who have a lot of money are bringing a load of stuff. You're like the tailgate partiers for a University of Michigan football game pre-COVID, and you're out there and you're setting up the grill and you've got 17 different kinds of bratwurst and all these other people who don't have as much as you do are left out. And so some of you are getting drunk, you're behaving in ways that are totally unruly, and you're completely leaving out others and looking at them as though somehow you're looking down on them. That doesn't sound like the body of Christ. How can you do that? I have no praise for you in this. The context for what he's going to tell us next and why it's so important that they take this portion of their meal seriously is what he got from the Lord. Now, we don't know for a fact whether he got this by direct revelation, if maybe Christ spoke to him, or if perhaps there were other eyewitnesses, as we know there were back in the day, by word of mouth, or perhaps even a written source. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you have taken some courses in school and your teachers would tell you this constitutes plagiarism. If I find in a report something that sounds very familiar, and if I look at another report and I see that there are word for word three paragraphs that are exactly the same, I'm going to assume that you didn't come up with that on your own, <laughs> that you copied from somewhere else. Well, you know what happens if we look at our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three, there are certain passages that look like there are really identical sections. Why would that be, do you suppose? <laughs> oh, it's because they were copying from some identical source. It's known now as sort of a hypothetical Q source, and scholars think there's a strong case to be made for the fact that early on, because people wanted to capture the most important words, especially those from Jesus they would have taken notes and they would have jotted those things down so that when other people were gathering together their gospel accounts, they would have been able to borrow some of those to say, I'm going to go to that source as well because I want to make sure that I get this section right. Makes sense to me. So for some people who might have the question, well, didn't 
some of this writing occur years after the fact? No. Actually, some of the writing took place as it was happening. It was probably left for them, and they could hold up a notebook and say, oh, you see here, this is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to put that into my gospel. So it was actually incredibly recent, and there's good corroborative evidence for that. So somehow, whether it was because Jesus actually appeared to Paul, as he could have, or if it were by these eyewitness accounts, Paul got this revelation about what Jesus did on that night when he was betrayed. And that's when he was saying, this is why we need to take seriously this thing we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He says it was on that night when Jesus took the bread, he blessed it and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he also took that cup after the supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant. Boom, big words there, important words. Things that to these people who may have come out of a Jewish background would have meant the world to them. They'd lived by the old covenant, trying to live up to the law of Moses, which only revealed how sinful they were and that they could not live up to it, which is why we needed a new covenant. We needed somebody to pay the price for us because we could never pay it for ourselves. How was that paid? the unblemished lamb in Christ's blood. That's the significance of the context of the real Lord's Supper, which is what Paul wanted to reiterate for them. He says, let me get right back to basics again. And I got it from the source. I got it from the Lord himself. This is why it's important. He says, whenever you eat and drink these things, remember me until he comes again, in fact. Every time you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming his death until he comes back again. That was important because we needed to remember the sacrifice. And these people were not remembering the sacrifice. They were treating the suppers that they had together as just more revelry. They were becoming sort of entertainment-oriented Christians. Good thing we don't have any of those around in 2020, right? The consequences of people taking lightly or not taking it at all, not recalling the significance of the Lord's Supper, were huge. Paul recognized that there were gigantic consequences. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, is what he calls it, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord himself. An unworthy manner would simply mean eating and drinking without discerning the body of Christ, which he gives us there a couple of verses later in verse 29. Everyone, therefore, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Paul is making a case for people to spend some time thinking seriously about their relationship with the Lord, thinking about where they are right there in that moment, hitting a little time out and getting introspective, praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal, is there something between me, some barrier that I started to put up between me and the Lord, and do I need to get rid of that barrier? Have I sinned? Is there something I need to repent from? Should I ask the Lord to forgive me for something? Is there some difference between me and a brother? Should I go to that person before the time when we're going to meet for that supper so that I can get that right? If so, you should take care of those things. We ought to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper instead of just gathering for revelry. Let me give this little hypothetical illustration. Now, we're not seeing grilled cheese sandwiches here in this meal in a fire department as some firefighters are gathering to eat. That actually looks like some really nice looking chicken there, which is pretty good. But let's say that you were a firefighter and that you were in a really difficult situation with some of your fellow firefighters and you're fighting a fire in a tall building 
and one of your coworkers, your colleague, has been doing a great job getting all the people out of that building. And there were about 15 people that they were trying to get out of this office building to make sure that they could escape before the fire started to collapse walls and ceilings. And all the other firefighters got out. You were the next to the last to get out. Finally, you saw your friend and you said, okay, that's everybody, let's get out of here. But he said, I think I saw one more person. I'm gonna go check on it real quick. And you said, no, we don't have time. That beam is about to go. And it's getting like one of the movies that you see, it's getting tense and it's right down to the wire. But you just step outside the door into the outer of doors and suddenly you hear this crash. And your coworker is in there. A beam breaks, the ceiling caves in, and your coworker is killed. So difficult situation. You decide that you're going to have a memorial service for that person. And there were things shared about your coworker. Some of the things that you liked about them, some of the things that drove you a little crazy about them, but you learned to appreciate. You appreciated the heroism that he had evidenced because he definitely had become a hero, saving so many people and yet giving his own life in the process. And one of the things that was mentioned was how much he loved grilled cheese sandwiches. And he used to make them in a waffle iron because he said, I just love all those little squares. They look so cool that way. And that was a big laugh for everybody. But about a week later, after the funeral, you decided that you're going to have sort of a commemorative meal and you're going to make grilled cheese sandwiches in a waffle iron. And you were just going to remember him for a minute and talk about the fun things that you remember about him in the times that you had together. But one of your buddies comes in. He didn't recognize the significance of what you were doing as there was a somber moment because you had pushed a plate off into the middle of the table that had a grilled cheese sandwich there and his favorite pop, which was a Fago grape pop. Of course, this had to have been in Michigan. It was a Fago grape and he loved grape pop. So you had a grilled cheese sandwich on a plate and a grape Fago pop right there in the middle of the thing. And this guy walks in and without realizing that you had done that so that you could use that to signify and symbolize the presence of your friend who was there among you, he just grabs the pop and starts downing it and starts to eat that grilled cheese sandwich. He goes, thanks guys, I love this stuff. How are the other people gonna feel about that right then? I suspect that some are gonna be a bit angry because they're gonna say, what are you doing? You're dishonoring our friend. That was there for good reason. And you fail to recognize the significance of what you're doing right then. See where I'm going with the analogy? I kind of think that's the way Paul was thinking about those folks in Corinth back then. And he says, more of the consequences that he said, because you're guilty of doing this crime, and he calls it a crime, he says, it's awful when you fail to recognize how important the symbolism is for what you're doing. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. What does falling asleep mean? Doesn't mean that they were sitting through such a long prayer for the meal that people literally fell asleep. I've been to some potluck dinners where that could have been the case, let me tell you. But this is not the case here. Falling asleep means something that makes this verse, verse 30, very perplexing and quite frankly, extremely difficult because it raises some serious questions about what we think about God and what he thinks about us. And we start to think, are, are we saying that we think God could actually discipline people extremely severely? And if so, how is that justified? Is he being kind? Is he being merciful? Or is he a whimsical, angry, mean God who can slap people up every time he wants to? Well, the cross-reference to find out what this fallen asleep means can be found in one of the other letters from Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, and after that, he, meaning Jesus, 
appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, some of his resurrection appearances, most of whom, he says, are still living. The reason that's highlighted is that helps give us context for what fallen asleep means, though some have fallen asleep. Now, if we didn't say, though some are still living, if it said, but some of these brothers and sisters have fallen asleep, we might think, okay, well, he might have appeared to a bunch of these, but some of the other folks hadn't awakened yet, so they're back at their houses sleeping. No, clearly that, that's not what this means. Obviously, by the context, it's easy for us to figure out that when he says they're still living, most of these eyewitnesses are still living, although some have died. It was a euphemism. It was something that they used very clearly and obviously for they passed away. They're waiting for that time when Christ does appear again, and then he's going to judge the living and the dead, those who have fallen asleep, and eventually God's going to usher in all of his final chapter in the great plan that he has for all of us. So here we have something that lets us ask big questions, thinking, whoa, this correction seems pretty huge, and I'm a little scared about what the implication might be for us, because if we're guilty of sinning against the body of, and blood of Jesus Christ, is my weakness or my illness a part of that? And could God actually kill some of his own children to keep them from the final judgment? That's what we're going to dive into in a few minutes. He says, verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment, which is why he says you got to examine yourselves. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. He's saying God loves us enough to warn us. He loves us enough to discipline us and change our hearts so that we can avoid that final judgment along with the world and those who have rejected Christ. Ooh, man, strong words, Paul. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you do gather to eat, you should all eat together. <laughs> Don't exclude other people and create factions and divisions among you. The rich sitting at this banquet table over here, the one that's got all the expensive stuff on there, and the others over there with Taco Bell. Don't do that. In verse 34, anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you do meet together, it may not result in judgment. Now, question about discipline. This is where we need to ask the tough questions about God's discipline, and is it terrible and awful, and is it unjust for God to do something like killing one of his own children to discipline them? The Greek word for this judgment or this discipline is krima. We get the English word crime for it. That's why we're using that particular kind of theme for this passage. That way, it may not result in the judgment from the crime that you have been found guilty doing. They had these agape feasts, and these feasts, as I mentioned, began daily in the early church, and they moved to being weekly feasts. It seems like there's something about that seventh day and uh, the Sabbath rest and the restorative nature about doing everything in sevens. It was an important number for them, and it was good to be able to celebrate the resurrection, which is why they had moved from doing the typical Friday through Saturday Sabbath and moving it to Sunday so we could celebrate Christ's resurrection. They had these agape feasts. It was a regular meal. And then they would have this one segment of the meal where they would have the bread and the cup. Well, of course, we see, as I mentioned, the crime on their part was failing to recognize the meaning, the significance of what that bread 
and the wine symbolized. So here are the questions that jump out of verse 30. Well, isn't God's punishment really harsh? I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, that sounds like something that maybe was made up. And maybe people just kind of thought that. And they were thinking of it like some of the Greek gods or something. And it's just a myth. Does God have the right to take a life if he is a loving God? Let's assume for the sake of this discussion that he is God. But does he really have the right to do that? And does God discipline people, judge and punish his own children by taking them home physically? so that they can endure the rest of eternity without being judged along with the rest of the world? Well, in verse 30, the first part of that says some are weak, others are sick. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says this about that. Sometimes Christ sees that we need sickness for the good of our souls more than healing for the good of our bodies. So he would say, yes, sometimes people are weak among you and some are sick because they need that time as a trial to help them press in more deeply to God and to learn what they need to learn about God and his character and about his discipline and about his love for us. And perhaps if we were completely healthy and everything was going hunky-dory in our lives, we wouldn't be forced to, re to rely on God so much. So he would say, yes, it's not harsh for us to be allowed to be weak or sick at times, because there's some of us who look back at seasons of our life when we were under trial and we think, you know, that's the closest I've ever felt to God. I remember that. I remember my dad saying that. He went through a time when he had to go in, into the hospital for back surgery and he was in agony. It was an awful time physically, but he came out of that experience and said, you know, I prayed more often. I read my Bible more often. I pressed into God more deeply. I leaned the full weight of my life on him. And I've never felt closer than in that time when I was in so much pain. It can be a blessing. We don't think about it that way at the time, but it really can be a blessing because God's aim is eternal. Man's aim is so often temporal. Man, it's hard for us to be thinking long-term. We're just thinking about, I want to get rid of this pain or this weakness. I want to feel stronger again, or I want to get over the sickness. I'm getting so tired about being tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I know we felt that at times. We all do. Some of you are feeling that right now. Maybe it's time for us to hit the time out, press into God, read his Bible more every day than we've read in a long time, talk it out with him, and press into him because he's got something to reveal to us about himself and about eternal expectations rather than temporary fixes. I knew for a fact that this was true for one family and they had a difficult time. Sometimes God allows us to go through seasons of trial so that we can deepen our faith and learn what we've been putting our faith in that's false. Because many times we've been putting our faith in something or we think, oh, I have faith in faith. What is that? Uh, it's circular reasoning, and the object of our faith may not be the truth from God's word. It may be something that we've made up or we've borrowed from some human philosophy, a man-made philosophy. That was true with one family. They were wrestling with a question because I'd had some good long coffee conversations. They had bought into this uh, faith and health and wealth prosperity gospel. Somebody had gotten to them with twisted scripture by suggesting that it is always God's will 
that we be healed every time we ask him for healing. That's always God's will. And I thought, I don't think that's right. So I did some studying. I brought back some scriptures, some examples. I said, no, that's not the case in scripture. Uh, Paul had asked for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. He kept asking. And God finally told him, Paul, I'm not going to remove it, buddy. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul was learning to rely on God daily, every day. Sometimes we need that little something that nags at us to keep us going back to him. It's all about the struggle because the struggle drove us to him. Another time there was one of the gentlemen that was going to be traveling with Paul on one of his missionary journeys. The guy got sick. Well, why didn't Paul just heal him? They've been healing lots of other people too. Why didn't he just heal him and say, okay, you're good to go. Let's go. Instead, he said, well, you stay here and convalesce. You get better for a while and then join us later. It says to me that God chooses not to heal sometimes, at least not immediately. God's God. Let me say that again, just in case that didn't sink in. God is God. That was Matthew Henry's idea. He's saying, why should we wonder if God chooses to do something or not? He's God. He could do what he wants to. And the reason we can trust that he wants to do what's best for us is because we see it through the lens of the cross. That's how we know that God is loving toward us. He's thinking about something eternal and not just something temporal. The problem with this family that was struggling to try to answer these questions, isn't it always God's will that we be healed every time we ask? Because we were quoting Isaiah 53, 5, I and mean, we just need to quote that and claim it. By his stripes, we are healed. Yeah, but we have to look at that verse and find out what that's really talking about in context. He was pierced for our what? Our transgressions. That means rebelliousness, the kind of sin that says, you've told me what's right. I'm not going to do it. I'm going the opposite direction right now. That's a transgression. It means it's a willful walking away from what you knew to be the boundary. It's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden. And it was visited on every single human since then. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. The punishment that brought us peace. Ah, what kind of peace? The lack of an illness? Uh-uh. No, the peace, it was the same peace upon whom his favor rests that we find out in Luke. The peace was on him, that eternal peace of finding resolution for the biggest problem that we have, which is sin. We're reconciled with God because of that. It was because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed from the problems caused by our sin, which is separation from God, which is eternity apart from God. See, that's about spiritual, eternal matters, not temporal, physical matters. That's what Isaiah 53, 5 means. I can't say this strongly enough. It's not about necessarily temporal, physical healing in context with all of the other teachings in the New Testament. Sometimes God can intervene. Sometimes God will heal somebody. I've seen evidence that that still happens, but sometimes not. And we can trust that God knows best. God warned, man rebelled, God punished, but through his punishment, his peace was restored because Christ took that punishment upon himself. So what happened with that family? They prayed about it. They actually wound up going to a different church where they thought there were some like-minded folks there. And yet one of their own daughters came down with a physical ailment that was perplexing to them. 
And they had to wrestle through all this on a personal scale to say, boy, I don't think that we're sinning against God right now. There's no known sin in my life. And I think that we're asking in the right spirit. And yet God's not taking this specific ailment away from our daughter right now. So I think it caused them to have to relook at this scripture that we've just looked at and to say, is there something that I've been placing my faith in that's not God's word? Have I needed to replace that with truth from God's word so that I can get the reality of the truth that God has for me? And they got it, fortunately. I think they really grew. Their faith was deepened because they had to wrestle through a trial period of their life. And what they discovered is God is always about our eternal destination. Yes, he can take us out of or help us through temporary trials, but his ultimate aim is our holiness forever. So through suffering, our belief in something that is not true can be revealed. If we're suffering right now, maybe this is a time for us to hit time out and say, is there something that I'm believing in that's not true? What might that be? God, reveal to me through your spirit and through your word what it is that I need to place my faith in that's going to result in eternal satisfaction, the peace that lasts for eternity. Through suffering, we can learn to place our faith in what's true. He just does that for us. The greatest healing is eternal. And so therefore, all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, even though we go through trials, can have that peace upon whom his favor rests, as we see right there in that passage in Luke 2, the Christmas story. Here's the big question then. It brings us to the latter part of verse 30. And we had to rack our brains around this one. I've had to rack my brain around it several times in my life, and I had to come back to it this week. And I wanted to make sure I got it right. Does God have the right to take life? Well, of course he does. He's God. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can see that in the book of Job, which is all about Job going through tremendous trial, including having life taken away. It raises big questions, questions about perfect will versus the permissive will. The real question is, will you trust him? There's all these questions that were given to Job. He had some friends, may have been well-meaning, but they asked sometimes the wrong questions. The right question is, will you trust him? Will you trust that God's ways are higher than your ways? Can you trust that he's more interested in your eternal holiness than in your temporary comfort? And that perhaps he could even use discomfort to help you draw closer to him for the purpose of being with him for eternity? Can you trust that? That was what was being asked of Job. Good questions. The underlying question that comes from all these other questions is, but yeah, couldn't there have been another way? God, couldn't you have somehow spared Job from all that grief when Satan was coming up there and saying, hey, there's your man, let me add him. Couldn't God have somehow said, no, you can't have him. I'm protecting him. Well, of course he could. He's God. He could have said, he could have said that. He could have come up against Satan and said, no, I'm not going to give you permission for that. For whatever reason, in that particular case, God said, yeah, this is going to be beneficial down the road, and I trust that he's not going to recant from his faith in me, and you can take everything except his life, but you can do whatever you want to with him, and he's still not going to recant. And Job proved him right. He maintained his faith through an incredibly difficult trial and tremendous grief. God, couldn't you choose to intervene and eliminate the need for harsh punishment? Maybe in Corinth, couldn't you intervene 
and cause people to suddenly get it and have a light bulb moment and go, oh, yeah, we've been failing to recognize God's uh, eternal payment for us through the body and the blood. And so we, we're sorry. We're, we're going to just repent from that. Couldn't you do that instead of having to bring judgment about certain people that have sinned against you and, and broken that crime? They're found guilty of that crime. Yeah, he could. God could do that. There's some crazy things in the Old Testament. There's one in Genesis chapter 20, where Abraham passes his own wife off as his sister in front of King Abimelech. Was it cowardice? I don't know, probably. And then King Abimelech says, oh, I'm going to take your sister, because that would have been okay, because she wasn't married, as far as he thought. But he didn't do anything untoward with Abraham's wife at least for a time. And then he found out, oh, wait a minute, it's not his sister, it's his wife. Then he's scared to death because he's afraid, oh man, what's going to happen to me? Is Abraham's God going to get me somehow? It's a weird passage. But God somehow fortunately recognizes the intent of what Abimelech says. And he goes, no, you didn't do anything wrong. And so you've got a clear conscience. And so it's okay. I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to do anything terrible toward you. God can choose to intervene, even despite sometimes the fact that we mess up and do crazy things. He can do that. He's God. But sometimes he can choose not to intervene. And we have to trust that he knows more than we do. And he knows the final picture of eternity and what we're going to need most temporarily. So sometimes he will intervene. Sometimes he won't. Can we trust him regardless? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some kid gets leukemia at age two. They live with leukemia for years. They finally go into remission, and they live a good long life. And people say, it's a miracle. God intervened. Praise God. God is so good. Another kid gets the same unfortunate disease, and they die at age 16. Do we say, oh, God is terrible? Or can we say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Difficult questions. These are not easy. These, this passage, verse 30 in 1 Corinthians 11, pushes us to the limit of our human understanding. And it pushes us to the point where we say, some of this is not logical. <laughs> some of this, it's hard to wrap my mind around. It's not an if-then-else computer program, and I can't figure it out. It's a trust passage. And it's asking us to say, do you trust God enough? We would like to say, is there a need for any discipline at all? Couldn't God just take care of it? That's what Simon Peter asked Jesus Christ when Jesus said, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to be mistreated. I'm going to have to be killed, but I am going to rise again. And Peter says, oh, master, there's got to be a better way. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Jesus knew that the only way was going to include suffering and death. And that's how God chose to pay for it. Sounds strange to us but it's a wonderful thing that he did for us. Meanwhile, back to the baby who was jumping out of the crib. I said we'd get back there, right? Years later, the baby's all grown up. They are asked about that little scar below the lower lip. Now, he could have said, oh, yeah, that scar? You know, my father gave that to me. Do you think that's what that kid would say? Or would he say, yeah, my father saved me? That scar is a reminder to me that when I was hurtling down to certain destruction, my father intervened, and I got the scar, but it's a reminder of how much he loves me because he saved me. Interesting analogy, because I think sometimes we don't understand what God is doing in the midst of our discipline, and sometimes we think he's a horrible, mean, bad person, 
for treating us the way he's treating us. But the reason for our discipline is always because he loves us. Don't make light of the Lord's discipline, says the writer of Hebrews. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Now, there are different levels of discipline, as we see in verse 30. Some are weak, others are ill, some have died. Why different levels? Maybe it's because of the level of the person's sin before they finally get it. Maybe some people get it quickly. It's like the pruning analogy. Maybe it's this little tiny bud that's starting to come out of the stick. They just lop it off when it's really tiny. Maybe others have become ill, and it takes a deeper illness, a more difficult illness for them to finally wake up and say, oh, man, I've totally missed that. I was off doing my own thing, and I was depending on my own strength and my own wealth for security. I wasn't placing my security in Christ. I'd forgotten that I'm a member of the body of Christ. I need to share everything with the others because we're all equal before the Lord. What am I doing? I'm acting so selfishly. Forgive me, Lord. And so maybe they come out of an illness. Some have died. And that's the difficult one. For us, we're thinking, do people go that far off path that they haven't lost their salvation, and yet they're just so far off the path that God says, okay, I'm going to take him home. He has the potential of doing so much damage to the rest of his family and to some of the people that he's interacting with. He still hasn't gotten it. He doesn't understand that he had it. He had it back over here, but I don't want him to be judged with the rest of the world. I'm going to do the best thing for him for eternity. I'm going to take this one home with me. Man, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? It really does push us to the limits of human understanding. And yet, God chose to allow his own son to be killed. Jesus says in the garden, Abba, Joy and I went to Israel a couple of years ago. We were on the plane. There was a Jewish family. They were all dressed up in their Jewish garb. They were going back to the Holy Land to meet with family members. Joy had a great conversation with the mom over there. She's Joy. She got the whole life story. And the little kid that was probably about three years old kept asking for his father and for his father to get him something or to help him over the seat or to do things like that. It was so cute because they go, Abba, Abba. He means daddy, daddy. That was the endearing, sweet terminology that Jesus used. It was like, daddy, please remove this cup from me. And yet it's not what I want, but it's what you want. God understands what it means to have a child who suffered and died. He understands that, and yet it was necessary for our eternal well-being. So we were wrestling with this question because we actually know a family that has wrestled with this very question, and to them, it's very personal. It was a young man who found Christ in his teen years. He was growing slowly but steadily. He became a young man of faith. He actually became voracious in reading more about Christ and about uh, the New Testament he wanted to be transformed to be more, more like Christ. And then he had kind of a little wayward time, but he came back again when he had another experience after he was married. He read a book that really impacted him. He had kind of a personal revival experience. And for a time, he was teaching Sunday school class in his church. I mean, he had it. He had the foundational truths down pat. And he was teaching and leading. And his life evidenced his walk with the Lord. And then for some reason, he started getting off into some crazy stuff. I don't know what the influence was, but in some of the talks that we would have with this person when we would get together, it just felt to me like he was just, 
veering off the track. And then one day we get the word that he had suffered a heart attack. He was stubborn enough in his own character and his own nature that instead of being able to reach out for help, he says, no, I'm just going to walk it off. Well, folks, let me tell you, you don't walk off a heart attack. He was in the hospital. He finally gave in to his wife's insistence. She took him to the hospital. He said, there, I hope that makes you feel better. They got to the hospital. They ran some tests. The people were very somber. They said, you waited so long that you got a hole in your heart. The only thing we can try to do is to put in an assist pump to get enough blood flow in there to give us, to buy us enough time to hopefully go in there and patch things up, but it's not good. You're in difficult, grim shape right now. They tried the heart assist pump. It didn't work appropriately. It couldn't keep up with the sized hole that was there. And they told him, there is nothing we can do for you. He said, keep me awake long enough that I can say goodbye to my family. He had some out-of-town family trying to come in, and it was a difficult time. You know what I would do if I were him? Now, I have to put myself in my imagination in his hospital bed at that moment. I knew at one time what the truth was, and I'd been teaching it to others. I had really gotten off path. You know what I'd be doing in those minutes or hours that I had left? Oh, man, I'd be doing some repenting. I'd be doing some serious talks with the Lord, and I'd be saying, God, I'm so sorry. Man, I'm so sorry I got so off path. I realize now that I'm facing my eternity. I'm going to be with you soon. I don't have any right to ask this, but please, please, will you forgive me? I mean, that'd be like the prodigal son right then. And fortunately, because we have the prodigal son as an answer, we know what God's response would be. The first words out of that grateful father's mouth is, yes, come home. That's merciful. Can you see how God, who has our eternal interests in mind, could be doing something merciful by allowing somebody to come home early? Because then they wouldn't have to be in separation in hell for eternity. I think that's merciful. Now, that brings up the question about perfect will versus permissive will. I don't think it matters. I've wrestled with this. You think about Pharaoh. And you think about Moses going to Pharaoh, and he says, here's what God says. He's going to visit you with these plagues. You need to turn from your rebellion. You need to let God's people go. And it says in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That sounds strange to us. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, it depends on what you look at in the way of permissive versus perfect will. All God did to harden Pharaoh's heart was to reveal God's power to him through the plagues. The hardening happened all by itself. When God displays his power, some people react by hardening their hearts. So we might put that on God. Well, what if God knew that that was going to happen and he, he failed to intervene? If God is omniscient and he chooses not to intervene, it's the same as if he made it happen. So it really doesn't matter. I mean, God did it. We're going to give him credit for having hardened Pharaoh's heart. Difficult to wrap our minds around, and yet we can see that whatever happens, happens because God allows it or he causes it. He gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's a difficult what if. What if someone has worked hard to push God away? 
and they have put themselves in a deadly situation, is it more merciful for God to allow them to die physically with enough truth and time for them to repent and to accept his perfect peace forever or to spare their life temporarily by healing them, knowing that they will continue to live with a hardened heart forever? If you put it into that context, I'm going to say that God is incredibly merciful to take someone home if the alternative would have been that they would be judged and in hell. I think that's a very merciful, loving God. Now, bring it all the way back around to the Lord's Supper, because that's where we started with the Apostle Paul. The danger Paul talks about is a hardened heart from those who fail to recognize the significance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. God hates sin, but he hates it enough to die for it so that we don't have to endure the consequences. He loves us enough to do what's best for us for eternity. <laughs>